Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. When we think of slavery in the Americas, most of us generally think of people from Africa and their descendants who were enslaved and transported across the Atlantic to provide labor for the plantation economies of the New World. But recently, historians have begun to reassess the significance of other forms of slavery in the Americas, specifically the enslavement of millions of indigenous people in the Caribbean and beyond. Rebecca Getz, who is a fellow this year at the National Humanities Center, is working to recover the history of indigenous slavery as it was practiced by competing colonial powers in the Caribbean. And she's exploring the relationship between the enslavement of Native peoples and the development of chattel slavery across the Western Hemisphere. Thank you, Becky. It's nice to have you here. It's nice to be here, Robert. Thank you. European imperialism in the Caribbean rested on a foundation of Native enslavement, which persisted concurrent with African slavery. Yet we haven't heard much about the Caribbean part. What's the relationship between the Caribbean slavery and the African slavery that we know a bit more about in the historical record? I think what's generally understood about the relationship between enslaved Native people and enslaved Africans in the Caribbean is that first Europeans enslaved Native people, and then Native people were all dead, and then Europeans started enslaving Africans. There are two problems, I think, with that kind of narrative. And the first is that it assumes um, indigenous extinction, that Native people simply disappeared from the Caribbean, and that's absolutely not true. Um, And so I'm very wary of narratives that emphasize the disappearance of Native people. But I think the other half of that is that we're not thinking about the ways in which Native people um, were enslaved alongside Africans Um, and how Native enslavement persisted well into the 18th century with highly sophisticated trades um, operating between Caribbean islands and the mainland. I'm trying to think about both the prehistory of that and how it persists um, well into the age of revolutions in the late 18th century. So we're talking about roughly 16th to 18th centuries, right? Yes. And which territories are we talking about? And What are the similarities and differences between those territories? When we think about the Caribbean, uh, I think we have a tendency to think about sandy beaches, you know, beautiful locations. I am looking at um, a combination of some of the smaller islands that are less well known to the kind of tourist trade in the present moment, and also some of the larger islands that people would have um, heard about. Beginning of my project is actually centered on an island called Cubagua not Cuba, Cubagua, um, which is probably a place that most Americans have never heard of. It's currently um, part of the state of Nueva Esparta in Venezuela. It's a very small island. It's about seven square miles, very little water, and only about 40 permanent residents now. In the 1520s, it was the center of Spain's pearling industry. And if you want to think about where enslaved Native people were being sent once they'd been captured by Spanish people in the 1520s, you can kind of picture a giant vortex around this very tiny island that's just sucking 
people in in incredibly large numbers. And so when I'm thinking about where we're talking about and what kind of Caribbean we're talking about, um, I'm not necessarily thinking about the big sugar islands that become more well-known later, places like Barbados and Jamaica, although I am interested in those places. I'm interested in these kind of smaller satellite spaces that we don't think much about now, but which were centers of the native slave trade then. So in addition to Kubogwai, I spend a lot of time thinking about St. Christopher, um, which was divided between the English and the French, and was the center of a long-standing three-way fight, really, between the English, the French, and the Kalinago. I also think a lot about Antigua, which the Kalinago overran repeatedly in the 1660s and 1670s. So, you know, I kind of get these peripheral spaces that in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century actually weren't peripheral. Why has there been so such neglect in the historical record about the, the Caribbean slave trade? Well, I think you put your finger on it when you said historical record, Robert. Um, as historians, we generally tend to rely on archives and archival sources, uh, what was saved by imperial powers in order to try to think about these things. And one of the difficulties of studying the enslavement of Native people is that in various moments in the Spanish Empire, in the English Empire, in the French Empire, it's, it's not simply not legal. You're not supposed to do it. And so when European slavers engaged in this trade, they often hid the fact that they were doing it. So they didn't create a paper trail um, that makes native enslavement obvious. That makes it a difficult archival project. It means it has to be a multilingual project. And it means it has to take a long time, um, as I have found that I've been taking a long time as I work on this. And so I think that's one of the reasons why historians haven't necessarily looked at the Caribbean. It's difficult work. It's painstaking archival work. A lot of um, historians simply don't have the resources to be doing that kind of work. I'm lucky that I'm at an institution at the moment that's like, take as long as you want for your second book and work this out. So I think the real answer to your question there, Robert, is that the archival sources are difficult, and that is why there's been less attention to this. So give us a little peek into those archival sources. I mean, you're bringing multiple languages to bear, mm -hmm. and therefore you're, you have multilingual skills that you're bringing to bear. But what specifically for our listeners, what kinds of archives are we looking at? What kinds of materials? Well, I'll give you an example of... Um, something I've been puzzling over over the last couple of weeks, and I, and I think this will do well to illustrate the difficulty. I have microfilm of a um, series of judicial residencies that the Spanish king authorized in um, the early 1530s. And what would happen is he would appoint a judge. The judge would go to a specific location in the New World, see what problems there might be, and then come up with a set list of questions and a set list of witnesses. And so he would ask each witness the same 20 questions or so, however many. And so there's a residencia in 1533 on Cubagua um, and on the neighboring island of Margarita. And we're talking about 1,500 manuscript pages um, of material from this judge interviewing people. And I was reading them, and I kept coming across this name, Doña Isabel. And I was like, who is this woman? And it wasn't until I was about 800 pages in, and we're talking very small, ridiculously cramped handwriting, and I, you know, I'm puzzling this out. I realized she's not a Spanish woman. She's Guayqueri, so a native person from the island of Margarita. 
she is a cacica, so she's, um, for lack of a better word, a chief, and so a person with significant political power. And she's involved in trading slaves with the Spanish. Sometimes she's involved in capturing them. She's continuously negotiating with the Spanish to make sure no Guayquerí people, so no people of her own ethnic group, are being enslaved. So she's protecting them at the same time as she's enslaving other Native people. And she also has a child um, with the lieutenant governor on Margarita, the chief Spanish official on the island. And so I'd been reading these documents for a long time, Robert, and it took me forever to even figure out that looking at this woman, Doña Isabel, we weren't talking about a Castilian woman, we're talking about a Native woman. So then I start looking in the secondary literature for information about this woman, um, and it turns out we know a lot about her son with this Spanish man who um, is generally credited in Venezuelan nationalist historiography as the founder of Caracas, you know, this great kind of mestizo conquistador, but very little about this woman and the things that she did. So I'm going back to these documents again and rereading, and what I'm seeing is a whole network of Spanish slaving activities, of Doña Isabel kind of preventing some of those, assisting in others, protecting her people but not others, and really playing a, a tightrope diplomatic political game with the Spanish. And it's one that I think she ends up winning in the end. And I'm not quite sure what to do with that yet. But just as an example, those are the kinds of sources, right? I don't think historians would have necessarily looked at this particular 1,500-page pile, pile of um, material and thought, oh, this is a source about slavery, and it's a source about Native people. I don't think most people would have thought that. And it took me, even me, and I'm tuned to reading for these things, quite a while to realize that that's what these sources were talking to me about. When we look at the history of the African slave trade and, and the history of slavery in America, we see moments of resistance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Nat Turner insurrection, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Surely there was resistance amongst the, amongst the uh, indigenous oh my, yes. peoples to European colonialism. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there are some more well-known events. There are open insurrections on... Um, in Santo Domingo, so the island of Hispaniola, which is today the Dominican Republic and Haiti, there are open insurrections from the mid-15-teens well into the 1540s. So we're talking several decades of ongoing um, anti-Spanish native insurrections. Um, you can say the same for Puerto Rico. You can say the same for Cuba. In that kind of initial two generations of conquest, um, there is a lot of native resistance, and a lot of it is um, centered on resistance to being enslaved. But you also see it not just in these kinds of well-organized insurrections where we can point to a leader. You can see it, I think, in the kind of day-to-day -day activities of native people. Reading in these judicial records, I started to realize that occasionally you get a deposition where somebody would be talking about one thing, but then he would veer off and he would complain and then my enslaved native man took a canoe and, and, and went away. And so you start to see these kind of individual acts of resistance, whether they're running away, feigning illness, which was a big complaint of the Spanish. They kept saying that um, enslaved native pearl divers would say that they were too sick to dive, these kinds of things. And you see, I think, figures like Doña Isabel, who are trying to come to terms with growing Spanish power in, in, in the region, but also trying to figure out ways of resisting the Spanish without having to go to war against them. 
And so you see a lot of those kinds of things. And, and those are themes that I think are familiar from how we think about the, the history of enslaved Africans in the islands. And so one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is where, where can we make similarities between the experiences of enslaved Native people and enslaved Africans? Mm -hmm. How were those similar experiences? How were they different? And how should we as historians talk about those similarities and differences. So let's talk a little bit more about the differences. So, you know, part of the problem in the reception of, of uh, the history of the African slave trade is, is the kind of stereotyping mm -hmm. of the slave population. How are the stereotypes of the indigenous Caribbean population, slave population, how do they differ? Um, and how do we uh, interrogate those stereotypes? That's a really interesting question, Robert, and it's something that I've been wrestling with. Um, especially from the Spanish side of things. Mm -hmm. I know I keep talking about the Spanish. I'm, I'm just working on them. In 1519, the Spanish monarch wanted to know specifically which Native people in the Caribbean were cannibals and which were not. And so he does this kind of quick and dirty, this guy named Figueroa, does this quick and dirty faux ethnography where he pretends to kind of travel around the Caribbean and says, these people are cannibals, and these people are not. So in these initial decades, what you have are Spanish making claims about Native people saying, well, these are cannibals, they're Caribs, even though they're not necessarily ethnically Carib in the way that we would understand that, and so therefore they're enslavable. And so enslavement is tied to a set of behaviors that the Spanish found abhorrent that the vast majority of Caribbean Native people didn't engage in anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what you have is this kind of building stereotype of Native people as unrepentant heathens, unrepentant eaters of human flesh, even though they really weren't. Um, and that is how the Spanish build their desire to enslave. Um, and that's how they excuse their slaving activities. And it's remarkable how long-lived that stereotype of various Caribbean Native people being cannibals lives. The English are talking about it in the beginning of the 17th century. They're still talking about it at the end of the 17th century. These stereotypes, they persist well into the 18th century as excuses and reasons for enslavement. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still kind of wrestling with, with mm -hmm. how to deal with this problem and how to deal with this guy in 1519 who, who basically... <laughs> for lack of a better term, categorizes all Caribbean Native peoples, even when he has no firsthand knowledge whatsoever, and the long um, shadow that that particular act casts on the relationships between Europeans and Native people centuries later. So this is your second major book dealing with uh, Indigenous peoples. So talk to us about how you got interested in this topic. What, what brought you to this subject well, I wrote this first book about religion and race in colonial Virginia that did a lot with um, trying to understand how English people viewed enslaved Africans and Native people um, and how they came to see Christianity as a racial marker. The, the subtitle of that book is How Christianity Created Race. I'm still very proud of that because it really says in a nutshell what I thought the book was trying to do. I kept a lot of notes that I didn't end up using in that book. And in 1627, there was this incident in Virginia in which several men from the Caribbean who were enslaved Native men from the Caribbean, ethnic identity unknown, 
had rebelled and run off to join Native people from Virginia, and the um, Virginia government decides to hunt them down and hang them. I don't know if they ever found them. And so my question was, where did these people come from and how did they get to Virginia? And that was kind of my starting point. I'd sent that first book off to be peer-reviewed, and so I was waiting and I had nothing to work on, and I thought, well, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to find out who these men were and where they had come from and how they came to be in Virginia in 1627 of all times and places. And I ended up writing a paper about the French and the English on St. Christopher and how they goaded um, the Kalinago people um, until the Kalinago attacked them. And then they organized a joint French and English counteroffensive in which they attacked the Kalinago, killed several hundred of them, and took many others as slaves. Now, the funny thing about this, Robert, is the English don't really write about it that much. Um, John Smith has a couple of narratives about it, and that's it. The French, however, do. And they talk about how beautiful Native women were and how French men were eager to enslave Native women. And so by parsing down into the French sources, I began to see that it was possible that these men who turn up in Virginia in the, in the late 1620s had been um, enslaved as part of this kind of joint Anglo-French enterprise. And that started me thinking about people moving over long distances, these kind of forced migrations of Native people. We often think about it as people from mainland North America being sold into the Caribbean and not the other way around. And I began to realize that um, the Caribbean was kind of more bowl in which people were circulating round and round. Um, there weren't necessarily direct lines in the way you can talk about direct lines from West Africa to, say, Brazil or to Jamaica or to Barbados or something like that. And so I wanted to, I started to think maybe the story isn't actually about Virginia or the mainland. The story is actually about the Caribbean and how we understand the forced migration of Native people um, in the period after 1492. Imagine 40, 50 years from now, and people are looking back, uh, historians are looking back. Can you encapsulate for us what the contribution of Rebecca Getz is going to be to the study of history based on the project <laughs> that you're working on now? What I hope this book does is that it forces historians of slavery to not think monolithically about slavery. I think, as you said at the very beginning, when we say slavery, we often think of, say, the plantation south. We think about the transatlantic slave trade from Africa. We think about sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And I want us very seriously to think about how we should include enslaved Native people in our understanding of this past. You mentioned at the very beginning that we're talking millions of people here, and that is, it's difficult to estimate how many. The estimates range from 2 million to 5 million when you think about um, both North and South America and the Caribbean. 5 million is a lot of people. 2 million is a lot of people. There are estimates for the Caribbean that say 600,000 before 1542. That's a lot of people. Um, for such a short span of time. And so I think we really need to be wrestling with how our narratives of slavery have not excluded but kind of ignored that part. And that has given us, I think, a very um, incomplete understanding of the relationship between European settler colonialism and slavery. So I hope that's what my book does. Um, I guess the jury will be out on that until it's finished. 
Thank you, Becky, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.